Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. As one of the most important American modernists, Stuart Davis, 1892 to 1964, blurred distinctions between text and image, high and low art, and abstraction and figuration, crafting a distinct style that continues to influence art being made today. Featuring some 100 of his most important, visually complex, jazz-inspired compositions, Stuart Davis, in full swing, takes a critical approach to the development of Davis's art and theory, paying special attention to his transformative recycling of earlier works. On November 20th, 2016, Harry Cooper introduces the exhibition in celebration of its opening at the National Gallery of Art, where it remains on view through March 5th, 2017. This show was about five years in the making, and I've always wanted to do a Stuart Davis show. I love his art. I like jazz. I like painting. I like color. I'm interested in cubism. I'm interested in how American artists in the early 20th century became original and dealt with European modernism, which was the great thing to deal with. And so for all those reasons, I um, always wanted to do a Davis show. And when I got around to it, I learned that Barbara Haskell at the Whitney Museum of American Art was working uh, a lot on Davis, maybe writing a biography. So we got together, and this often happens. Two curators want to do shows, and they do the same show. And it was a great partnership. The show has been at the Whitney already. And after this venue, it goes to the de Young Museum in San Francisco and then Crystal Bridges in um, Arkansas. Thank you. I've never been there yet. So it's a great sort of American tour for an American artist. And one of the things that struck me as we were organizing the show, it's not a huge show, 75 paintings. We both felt that there's so much to look at in each painting that Stuart Davis shows in the past have been a little bit overwhelming. So relatively um, modest-sized retrospective. And of those 75 paintings, they're from 45 different museums from 23 states. Um, so not at all the usual uh, bi-coastal big museums, but so many museums around the country have one or two paintings, which I think speaks to how important Davis was to collectors, um, American collectors around the country. So what I think I'll do is uh, try to weave in his biography with his career, um, with aesthetics, formal analysis, art history, and to begin with, fill in the early years, because the show starts in 1921 in full swing. Pardon the pun, but you know we wanted to start um, when he really comes into his own and not spend too much time on the apprenticeship. But I'm going to show that to you because it's in the catalog and I want it to be in your, in your eyes as you go through the exhibition. And in a way, um, what we can see is that he very much comes out of a lot of the art that's well represented in the National Gallery. So he was born in Philadelphia in 1892. And both of his parents were artists. His father, um, a newspaper illustrator, art editor. And they moved in 1901 to East Orange, where his dad worked for a, a Newark newspaper. And Davis dropped out of high school in 1909 to go to New York and study with Robert Henry. And you see 
one of my favorite Henry paintings here on the right, which is hanging right upstairs, Snow in New York of 1902. So you can see that Davis, and when it, when it doesn't say Davis on the screen, it's Davis. So Davis on the left um, is a very good Henry student here, but with a little more, a little more panache, a little less varnish, a little less old master feeling, maybe a little bit more of a feeling of modernity. Henry was famous for encouraging his students to be themselves. It wasn't an academic training in the usual sense. He wanted them to read widely and to paint the life of the streets, the life around them, the life of the times. And so he spent about three years with Henry. Another Henry student was George Bellows. So here, the subjects are different, but the approach is very much the same. This, uh, you know, dramatic, uh, glaring, uh, garish, exciting um, scene of urban entertainment. Davis on the left, Bellows on the right, again, hanging just upstairs. Bellows wasn't his best friend in that group, but he, he was certainly looking at Bellows. Again, here we see Davis in a moody self-portrait on the left, and it's almost as if he's, he's placed himself in front of Bellows' lone tenement. Uh, if you look at the the palette and the light striking the building and the fence and the river and everything. Davis did a lot of illustration, a lot of watercolors. It's an easy thing to bring into the cabaret, to bring into the nightclubs. And again, all this is not in the show, so I'm, that's really, um, but, but it's so interesting. I love the, the figure on the right who seems to be doing a bit of, a bit of uh, crowd surfing there. Uh, another moody portrait of Davis on the left, and we begin to see his interest in, in letters, signs, advertising, chop suey. <laughs> and then these domestic scenes, pot boilers, um, Reminds me a little of Walter Sickert, the, the British painter, doing um, very similar scenes at the same time. Some people think Sickert was actually Jack the Ripper, and, um, you know, Davis was not. But uh, he's interested in that, that, that sort of um, storytelling. He went to work for the masses, and that was very important for him. Um, his illustration started to get published, even on the cover. This cover created a bit of a controversy. The other artists on the masses objected to it. It was, it was really um, so ugly, so unidealized. Um, the solution was to add a caption that made it okay, G-Mag, think of us being on a magazine cover. Um, the Masses, um, as you may know, was a left-wing magazine dedicated to working people, um, not communist per se, but certainly certainly socialist, and Davis uh, shared those ideas with a, with a whole bunch of bohemian artist friends um, who were hanging out in Greenwich Village and working uh, for this magazine. So that's one thing he's doing in New York, and, and he's also traveling um, up to Harlem, over to Hoboken, and and Weehawken to hear jazz, uh, which wasn't really even called jazz yet, but to hear blues, boogie-woogie, um, 
in, in dives, in gin joints, in barrel houses, as they were called, where you could just drink cheap liquor and hear musicians um, really playing for free uh, to entertain the customers. Some people thought that um, he, was, he was going too far to caricature, especially when it came to the Negro, and he defended himself and said, I'm just, I'm just drawing what I see and I'm caricaturing everybody, which was true. So 1913, something major happens in New York in the art world, a big show. I think a lot of you know what it was. Armory show, yes. Um, so bringing the news from Europe of art of the last 20 years or so, Gauguin, Van Gogh, even recent work by Matisse, Picasso. Davis had five watercolors in the Armory show, thanks to Robert Henry. Um, but the main thing about the Armory show was for him, what he saw in the show. And you can see immediately afterwards in this painting on the left, Ebtide Provincetown, he is no longer a Robert Henry student. He has embraced um, radical color, uh, a certain amount of, of interest in abstract pattern and form, although he's justifying it with the, the sort of um, Ebtide there uh, in the scene. And on the left, uh, a painting which always amuses me because it's a sort of amalgam of Van Gogh's bedroom at Arles with Matisse's Red Studio. If you put those two together, that is basically what you get. It's not a great painting, um, but it, it tells a lot about where he's coming from. And um, where Matisse's Red Studio has a grandfather clock, Davis has a phonograph player, which cues you into his interest in popular music, and he's, he's never far away from it. I mentioned Van Gogh. Here he is in two different uh, Van Gogh costumes. Uh, Van Gogh loved the, um, you know, the, the uh, Asian, uh, the idea of an Asian art colony that he wanted to set up in the south of France didn't work out too well for him. But Davis, um, you know, he wasn't just impersonating Van Gogh, he was learning uh, color and learning brushwork from Van Gogh. And I think that's what really stays with him is that brush stroke, which is juicy and um, expressive. It follows the contours of things, almost like toothpaste. And when you look at Davis's paintings, they all have that. They may look pretty flat in reproduction, but when you get up close, uh, they all have that. Um, did you know that Van Gogh visited Gloucester, Massachusetts? Really very, a very good outing for him. There are many paintings like this. And you know, there's nothing wrong with this. This is how, this is how artists learn. And Davis was not ashamed of this. Um, he was often accused of having too many influences. And, um, and he defended himself vigorously. He said, Picasso has as many influences as Carter has pills. Carter was the king of, um, uh, what's that called? Um, pills and po uh, potions and uh, there's a name for that. Anyway, patent medicines, thank you. Yes. Yeah, it'll fix your liver, it'll fix everything. Um, 
very strange painting here, a very interesting painting. It happens to be one of, one of two paintings that we have here at the National Gallery. It was given to us by Davis's son, Earl Davis, multiple views. I think it's a terrible painting, uh, but very interesting. It, it, it didn't have a chance to be a great painting because this was done in a contest at the Whitney Club, uh, run by Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, um, down on 8th Street. She was a patroness of the avant-garde. She got a lot of painters together, and they were assigned an already framed uh, canvas and given three days to work on it. And Davis had a bunch of sketches, mostly of Gloucester scenes. And I should say, Gloucester is his, his sort of north star, his escape from New York City. He goes there every summer, um, staying. He doesn't, it's not that he had any money, but he stays with friends. There's an artist colony. And then he brings the work back and, and reworks it, which is what happened uh, here. Um, this feeds into several subsequent paintings. And I think it also shows that he's interested in capturing a whole lot in each canvas. He talked about uh, simultaneity and the excitement of modern life, um, the speed, the dynamism, the ability to communicate, the telegraph. And remember, Davis. His, his dates are 1892 to 1964, so just imagine what he lived through, inventions of light bulb, uh, you know, automobile, airplane, world wars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he doesn't manage to bring it all together here. It's really um, just a series of kind of, it's almost like uh, paste-ups or something, but, but it shows that that was his ambition. Takes a quick trip to Cuba. Really didn't travel very much, 19, late 1919, early 1920, had a great time, heard a lot of, a lot of uh, Cuban music, dancing, of course, it was a place a lot of Americans were going. I love the pig down there at the bottom. And uh, they had a good time. He was with a friend. The friend uh, apparently got a venereal disease and they had to come back early. So it was a quick trip. And he comes back, and this is where the show begins, in 1921. Why 1921? Really because of these paintings, which are the first paintings by Davis that we can say uh, are not just a compendium of other influences. Uh, we call them the tobacco paintings. There are four of them, roughly four of them, and they take tobacco packages. Um, they're flattened out. They're somewhat rearranged, but they're painted lovingly with this attention to the logos, the images, and the lettering. So there's one. They have a combination of watercolor, graphite, and oil. It's part of the reason that the light in the first room is rather low to protect these paintings. We also see more interest now in calligraphy coming out. And it shows you that he was really a wonderfully sensitive um, observational painter. He had all these skills, and like a lot of modern artists, he gave a lot of those up. He, he didn't want to continue um, with that sort of detailed work, but we, we see it here at the beginning. The show happens to be sponsored by Altria, uh, in part, Philip Morris uh, Company, um, and they let me know that they didn't own any of these brands at that time. I don't know if that was a criticism or not. 
So these paintings are often compared to Cubism. I don't really buy that. For me, they have a lot more to do with the tradition of trompe l'oeil painting. And so here, showing you another great National Gallery painting on the left by Pito, in which you see really that same interest in just the flat, um, really kind of uh, direct presentation of ephemera, bits of printed matter, uh, showing, uh, giving clues to a whole kind of, a whole kind of experience. Um, and, you know, it's not that Davis is doing the same kind of trompe l'oeil. We, we don't imagine that there's a bulletin board or a hinged door or something behind his. Um, but I think, uh, I think it's an interesting comparison. He does quickly jump into Cubism. Now, I said there, there was some Cubism at the Armory show in 1913. He wasn't really ready to see it. Um, but then there are a couple more shows in Brooklyn in, in around 1920, which he does see. And, and at this point, he's, he's really ready to plunge into Cubism. It's a very difficult art, and I think it makes sense that it took him um, some time to do that. So uh, Brock on the left, one of the first Cubist paintings, one of those paintings that M Matisse said, I see a lot of little cubes here. Um, as Matisse was rejecting that painting for uh, a show in Paris in 1908. Um, and Davis is, is really all over cubism here. Um, the facets, the uh, limited palette, I, I don't even have to spell it all out for you. It's, it's really so close. And, and he does um, some major American cubist paintings. And this one I really wanted to include in the show. Um, my colleague Barbara Haskell thought it's it's just not that good Harry but I think it's it's very interesting um, to see how 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 good he was as a cubist um, a lot of Juan Gris in here in particular uh, the red still life and I wanted it in the show partly to compare it to a painting that will come up later so uh, remember that um, we're still in the first room. I'm sorry I'm going slowly, but we'll, we'll speed up. We'll get through it. Um, so those paintings, with the, that sort of dark ochre muted powder on the left, on the right are paintings from just two or three years later, where he's still looking at packages and products, but with a, a very different lens, much brighter palette, simpler forms. Um, the Odal mouthwash bottle, this was a popular product then. And the slogan, it purifies, is probably a joke on purism, which was uh, a movement that Fernand Leger in Paris, along with Ozenfant, uh, Le Corbusier, they were advocating this art that took ordinary objects and made them into a kind of neoclassical um, ideal. So Leger is one of Davis's favorite painters. Purism in 1925 at the Expo des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, it, it sort of had its great moment. Um, so it purifies. Uh, he, he likes puns. He, he, he's fun. Um, the, the Washington Post Review, I don't know if some of you read it, it described Davis as, as really um, very analytical, chilly, almost cold. And I actually think that a lot of people are asking me, what did you think of that? And, and I thought it was very interesting because that is, that is absolutely one half of Stuart Davis, I think. We see him um, analyzing his own work, going back to his own work, variation, repetition, inversion, but at the same time, he has a lot of fun along the way, I think. Um, for example, with these two 
light bulb paintings, and just like the mouthwash, painting them in very different styles. So on the left, um, really much more staid, um, cut crystal glass, um, careful reflections. On the right, um, really much more, much more modern, um, playful, bright. And I didn't know what that vertical item was until uh, someone suggested that it is that corrugated package that protects the light bulb, and which they had all the way back then. I mean, without those packages, we probably couldn't have light bulbs. So um, he's, he's, he has this great eye for interesting objects, you know, interesting topographies of objects. The painting looks a lot like uh, Picasso, people have observed, but it really looks like Picasso from, say, 1940. It doesn't look like Picasso at this point. I think what this painting and Picasso have in common is an interest in cartoons. There's a kind of caricatural, jaunty um, way of, of describing things that is, is very cartoony, and Davis loved uh, loved cartoons. Here, for example, in a painting from the Hirshhorn, he's putting a cartoon, right? right on the front page, right in the middle of his painting, Tad Dorgan, who was uh, an associate of, of Harriman, of Crazy Cat fame, another one of Davis's um, favorite cartoonists. And we have, uh, again, we have the references to tobacco in this kind of mock realist style. Here's the painting I wanted to get to in relation to Red Still Life. Um, so it comes about three years later, and it's a very similar subject, as you can see here. Um, the tabletop still life, that cocktail glass on the right, some drapery uh, in the back, um, a kind of U-shaped uh, cavity under the table, and we can trace it back to, to a, a whole series of paintings by Picasso of, uh, in that case, a, a mantelpiece above a fireplace, but it's, it's a very similar structure, a similar way of, of dealing with this vertical composition. Now, Super Table is at, at the end of the first room, still in the first room. <laughs> Can't get out of there. Um, very important painting because at the same time that it looks back to something like uh, Red Still Life, um, it's looking forward, as we'll see. Um, why go back to cubism? Again and again, it's something he does throughout his career. He rescues these 1920 paintings that really nobody cares about and makes them the basis for new compositions. I think it's because he had a love-hate relationship with Cubism. He, he loved it, and he felt very anxious about it um, because everyone was saying, you're a late Cubist, you're another Picasso. And in a way, by going back to them and, and, and twisting them into new shapes, he, I think that was his way of dealing with it, perhaps. Um, so, so the super table, and you get the pun there, supper, super, above, below, um, leads on to this great series of egg beater paintings. We are now, hooray, in the second room of the exhibition, and he gets a stipend from uh, Gertrude Whitney, um, whom I mentioned before, uh, the Whitney Studio Club. It was $125 a month, which I think was quite good money at that point. Uh, for a whole year, he was able to stop doing all of his odd jobs and just paint. 
and he said that he nailed an egg beater, a rubber glove, and an electric fan to a table and painted them for a year. And the result was these four paintings from four different museums. This one from the Whitney is number one, from the Eamon Carter, number two. And maybe you can see a blue handle that would fit your fingers on the egg beater. Maybe you can see some some blades of the egg beater. But I like what somebody uh, said um, uh, last week when we were going through it, that uh, where is the egg beater? He, there is no egg beater. He has used an egg beater. He, he, has, he has taken an egg beater to the painting, to the representation. Um, so that's number two. Number three from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And number four right here from the Phillips. So this is maybe the main reason to do a Stuart Davis retrospective every 20 years is to have an, have an excuse to get these four paintings together. Certainly one of the, one of the big reasons um, to do it. Uh, and, you know, I, I said, I, I, I think I said I don't really believe the story about the, the um, nailing the stuff. To, how can you nail, nail an electric fan to a table? But really, for me, these are kind of urban landscapes. They have a kind of stage-like space. There's a very clear um, perspective uh, box, shallow space. Um, you really, uh, it, it, almost like flats, you know? And um, in which some, some strange dramas are playing out. Here, maybe you see most clearly this, this clear perspective box. And, um, and, and then this interruption, uh, almost opening, opening up the box into a kind of fourth dimension, maybe inside it, um, and letting things, uh, letting things unfold. And then Gertrude Whitney comes through for him again and buys a couple of paintings, just enough money, $900, so we can get to Paris. He's one of the last members of the club, one of the last of his, his cohort to get to Paris. And that may, that may have been a good thing, because he's going to Paris already pretty mature. And he's certainly looked at a lot of, a lot of French art. And what he does in Paris is really relax and have great fun with these um, paintings, uh, almost uh, tongue-in-cheek, maybe uh, slightly kitschy tourist uh, postcards uh, that he could send home, uh, so to speak, from Paris. And playing, as you see here, with theme and variation, um, the jockey, the horse, the, the same, same basic street scene, everything else different. Uh, these, these are not in the show. There were a lot to pick and choose from. We, we made a selection. These are in the exhibition. So he's really taking a break from the egg beaters, I think, and um, taking a little vacation from the rigors of abstraction, um, enjoying himself, drinking, eating, smoking, hanging out with a lot of American artists. Calder was there, Marsden Hartley, Man Ray. Um, he meets Leger, he brings two of his egg beater paintings there, and Leger sees them and likes them, and around town he becomes known as the, the egg beater painter, or the egg beater painter, um, perhaps. He didn't speak French. Um, these are both in the show, playing with this theme of the arcade. This uh, was identified for me, uh, maybe you, you know it, and those of you who've been to Paris, 
as one of those kiosks on which um, you know, notices and advertisements are, are pasted. And he gets back, he spends just about a year there on the, while there he gets married to uh, Bessie Chosak, whom he had met in 1925, just a wonderful time. And he is all set, his career is all set to take off. He gets back in summer of 1929, and what happens in the fall of 1929, in October? The crash. And it pretty much sets him back 20 years, I would say. Um, in terms of his career, he escapes up to Gloucester, here painting, painting the scene, um, struggling a little bit with, with New York and the transition, and he decides to handle it by painting three paintings in which New York and Paris are put into the same canvas. So, uh, you know, elevated uh, tracks there, here the, the large version of that kiosk I was talking about. Um, this one is in the exhibition, this one, um, could not travel to the exhibition. I would say he is uh, really a, at a bit of a loss at this point, trying different things. He even, he's writing a certain amount about Dada. And um, here I think he turns to Picabia and these, these uh, crazy portraits that Picabia would do of people um, that were really machines. Um, so uh, these are the same size, really an interesting pair of paintings. When I was going through the show with, with Earl, uh, Davis's son, who, who was of great, great help to, to, um, to the exhibition, um, he said, I still have that salt shaker. It's, it's a totally ordinary glass, steel top restaurant salt shaker, so. A darker, version of the Gloucester scene. Uh, why the obsession with Gloucester? He writes about his interest in schooners, fishing schooners, rigging, diagonal lines, masts. He says that um, for any artist, they, they can save you from getting lost in the void, in that sky, that deep space, which he doesn't want, because he wants everything really to be very modern and, and near the surface and in your face. So it's a way of structuring space for him that he gets very interested in. At the same time, we should remember he's, he's a great fan of Walt Whitman. And if we think about Whitman and the places Whitman liked to go and write about docks, ports, harbors, also bars, taverns, uh, streets, um, very Whitman-esque in, in the way he moves about the city and, and the harbor. This is a painting um, with a story to it, uh, done for a Museum of Modern Art show in which artists were asked to paint uh, studies for murals, large paintings that could function as murals. The point was to try to promote artists as candidates for public art, because that was one of the few ways for artists to work during the Depression. So he does this New York mural. Um, and you can read the wall texts, um, which I've written next to a lot of these. And this, this one is all about Al Smith, who had been a uh, four-time governor of New York, had failed bid for president. Um, at this point, he is um, working for as a, as a kind of a head of the Empire State Building Corporation. Empire State Building had just been built. 
uh, just finished a year before. And so I think Davis is um, really asking Al Smith for some work. Um, and he includes his signature right there, um, right in the middle, hidden in plain sight. And he gets another commission from Radio City, which is also just being built. Um, and the designer is Donald Desky. And the, every, every level of Radio City has, has restrooms and their lounges in front of the restrooms. The men, it's a smoking lounge. The women, it's a makeup lounge. And you can go and take a tour there and you'll see these wonderful built-in um, stools and mirrors for the women. And anyway, the painting, which we couldn't borrow, and this is a study for it, is still in Radio City. It's a huge, um, wonderful painting on these male themes, barbershop, smoking, uh, gas station. I guess women didn't pump their own gas, and so on. Um, he will go back to it for a small painting uh, in 1941. These two are together in the exhibition, just to show you. Um, I think one thing that happened here, this, the, the colors of this are rather dull because it was supposed to be executed in linoleum. So it would be a kind of linoleum um, tableau in, in those dark colors. And in the end, he just had to paint it, but he stuck with that color scheme. So here he's brightened it up. The main thing he does in the 30s, um, apart from mural commissions, is political work. Uh, he's joined the John Reed Club, which was a communist organization. He then joins a whole, a whole series of organizations dedicated primarily to getting artists to work, um, getting that federal money into the hands of artists, uh, and getting a fair wage and a living wage. He ends up being president of the American Artists Congress. Um, he, he, is, he is protesting. He's testifying before Congress. He's, he's, he's really uh, a full-time operative on behalf of artists. And, and, and those organizations also embrace a larger causes. So here, I think, a uh, comment on, on the Spanish Civil War going on, but seen in, in, uh, in New York terms. A um, couple of uh, uh, maybe, maybe company cops uh, beating up a protester and showing him away. The sign, sign is abandoned on the ground. Um, Barb, wonderful, wonderful uh, element here. You, you can go through the whole show just looking for Davis's um, swirls, his knots, his loops. It's a wonderful way to look at him, and uh, they're, uh, they're always different and um, very inventive. Uh, so in the exhibition, it's paired with um, another watercolor, and this just happened because it was a corner where the light was low. We don't have too many works on paper, so, so this was a safe place for them. I didn't know how these would, would go together because this one on the bottom is from um, three years later, 1939, really belongs in another series. But once I put them up, I realized, hey, you know, almost any Davis can go with any other Davis. His, his extent, his language is so sort of um, well-defined, uh, his, his, his lexicon, and he's, he's using it um, He's always using some of it, so, so um, you know, you can see the house here. And I think one thing that's very interesting, which, which speaks to what happened to him and to a lot of people on the left right around 1939, is that um, this cannon here, belching, you know, uh, fire and a cannonball, I suppose, um, gets turned into 
uh, just a, an ordinary smokestack. And um, what, what happened um, right around 1939 was that the American Artists Congress um, decided not to condemn the um, Soviet invasion of Finland, not to condemn the, uh, uh, the, the non-aggression pact between, between Hitler and Stalin. The organization had been taken over by, by the hardline um, communists, and, and Davis and a lot of his liberal friends were, had finally had enough. So, um, but before I finish with that story, um, this is, this is really the highlight of the third room. It's a great big room with wonderful natural light. And at the end of it, on its own wall, is Swing Landscape from 1938, maybe his greatest painting. And um, one of two government commissions. The, the other commissions I talked about were not government. One of two um, federal arts project commissions. Um, this one for a housing project in Williamsburg. Great, sprawling, big new housing project. They wanted some paintings for the the social rooms, the meeting rooms, um, and a number of artists were, were invited. And this never got hung. And I think this is what Radio City would have looked like if, if he had not been thinking linoleum. Um, really, really bright colors. Very, uh, not, not a background painting. Not a piece of decoration for a room. Um, it would be hard to have a meeting in front of this painting, really, without getting quite distracted. Um, I think it's wonderful that what he does for this Williamsburg housing project is give them Gloucester. Uh, you know, this is the, the, the harbor scene, um, really two strips here, this one for the, the, the dock, um, and here for, up here for the sky, and then in between this great frieze of forms, uh, buoys, masts, rigging, water, ripples, ropes, uh, of course, uh, his, his always his different loops and twists. Um, he had a theory at this point that there should be no center to a composition. There should be multiple or serial centers. Um, and of course, the mural is perfect for that as a kind of frieze. And uh, given that, plus the intensity, this even overall intensity, I think it really looks ahead to Jackson Pollock, um, say, to the mural he did for Peggy Guggenheim's apartment just about, about uh, six years later, um, and uh, Davis would talk about a democracy of the surface, which is a great modernist idea that, that there is no center, there is no periphery, there is no foreground, there is no background. You know, coming out of Cezanne, really, and a certain view of Cezanne, every, every part of the painting has to be brought up together at the same time with, with equal importance. Um, we happen to have this wonderful study for the painting that came from the Corcoran collection, and uh, it's actually a study for the left two-thirds of the painting. It got cut off on the right, so that loop there, uh, you know, in Swing Landscape, there's, there's all that, which we're missing, but still, I think partly because of that, that idea of multiple centers, it doesn't really matter. It, it really stands on its own, and it's a lot of fun. Spend some time looking between this and the mural and, and to see what he what he changed and, and didn't change. Um, the other government mural was for the New York public radio station, WNYC. It was installed there. And um, I love this painting. It's pretty unusual. It has a lot of, a lot of empty space for him. I think he, he is really um, 
sensitive to the fact that you know people need to live with this. It can't be. Maybe he learned a little something from the swing landscape experience. Um, it's now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has lent it, and um, see the saxophone, the clarinet. So it's an opportunity for him to to, to make jazz an explicit theme. Um, probably some. And these, these apparently, somebody told me the other day, are uh, circuitry symbols for uh, resistors and uh, maybe a couple of knobs here. Perhaps that energy then feeding into, um, to what? Uh, is that a drum set, somebody thought? My, my uh, great friend, Hayes Greenfield, jazz musician. Um, I think it's Gloucester, harbor scene, maps, street, I mean, uh, mass and rigging. Um, but it's kind of up for grabs as it should be. 1939-1940. Um, so I, I mentioned that he has had this political disillusion, really bitter uh, withdrawal from, um, from all of his work. And he quits the presidency of the American Artists Congress. And, and it's just about at that time that he begins his habit of very deliberately going back to his earlier work. And I wonder if there's some kind of connection that turning away from uh, big outer issues, turning inward. Um, you see it here in a report from Rockport, uh, which is based on this uh, gouache, smaller gouache from um, a little more than a decade ago. And uh, again, these, these hang next to each other, so I could just go back and forth really quickly like that, but that would that would make you crazy. So you can just go into the exhibition and figure it out. Um, I went through a lot of his writings. He has some 10,000 pages of notes. And, and this is one thing that I found. Um, July 25, 1938, he jotted down some exhortations to himself, probably never intended for publication. Sorry, Stuart. Um, he resolved to make paintings that would, he wrote, one, be liked by French artists. He's no fool. That's where the art world is now. Two, be distinctly American. So, interesting tension already. Three, be easy to execute. He's tired, he's bitter, he's poor, and he has dozens of paintings that have not sold um, you know, in the back room. Uh, four, be large in size. And painters have always known this. You know, when you go into the salon, make it big. So, you know, they can't put it way up in the corner. And five, contain the major proportions of some of my earlier works as its basis, thus bringing out the aesthetic essence, which was confused by other details. And then, I think tellingly, he, he says as a footnote, to save time by using material already on hand. He's talking about efficiency, about survival, about you know economy. Um, and um, it's a very pragmatic, maybe very American kind of kind of way to think about having a career, but it's, it's, it's sophisticated too because he's looking, he's looking to uh, France at the same time. Now, my only uh, quibble with this is number five, um, where he says that to bring out the aesthetic essence which was confused by other details in the earlier work, but that's the earlier work, right? And that's the later work. <laughs> so I rest my case. You can't always believe the artist. Some of the notes and jottings uh, have sketches with them or occur, in this case, in sketch pads. 
And this is a wonderful example of a, a rather elaborate Gloucester sketch um, with, with um, some very interesting notes about, about simultaneity and, and um, um, expansion and contraction and proportional space by expansion and, and, and contraction. I won't, you know, won't go into the whole thing, but that serves, that one sketch then serves as the basis for really a great set piece of variation where he shows us what he can do first, uh, turning that sketch into a, a, a black on white painting and then um, adding color and in a way making it more legible through color. So we see the, the shack uh, for, the, for the fishing boats and maybe some of these levers operating a crane, rigging, masts, etc. Um, not to say that this is realism, but uh, it's more realistic than these. Uh, so in 1954, he turns it on the left into a kind of quilt. And in fact, he was accused of just making paintings that looked like grandma's quilts. And uh, he, he did quite a few TV interviews in the 50s when he was, he was really getting known. And he, he responded, uh, grandma was pretty good. Uh, and I, I love that response. And then, so, so on the left, all, all patchwork, no lines. Uh, and then on the right, going back to that, that linear origin, but, but turning it um, inside out, white on black, just very uh, playful, interesting, um, re constant reinvention of himself. Um, uh, but to, to, to get back on the chronological train, and one of the interesting things about organizing the show is that you can't really do a chronology because you have all these connections and families of paintings, and, and so it's always going back and forth between the sort of grouping across time and trying to follow some kind of path. Um, so, so the 1940s uh, were a very hard time for him, um, and uh, drinking a lot, and not to not to put too fine a point on it, just really having having an alcohol problem, um, and having a very small studio, living with his wife in a walk up where they had to carry ice, they had to carry cold cold water flat, not much room to paint. He's painting. This is a very small painting. Um, he's trying to get everything into each painting. Um, very interesting, and uh, it's really as close as he gets to to abstraction. This is. Uh, an arboretum scene, the flash, the flash of a flash bulb, uh, perhaps an aquarium scene. Not sure, just judging from the title. But he does get back with with his dealer. He had broken with her because you know nobody was selling anything, and there was a lot of bad feelings. And he got back with her in 1943, and she gave him a show. And by this time, he is um, he's in his 50s, and he's he's really very well known, and he's a kind of senior figure, dean of American artists, Duke Ellington there, comes to the opening. Pete Mondrian, who's in New York, came to the opening. He had several sessions of listening to records with Mondrian and arguing about jazz with Mondrian. Uh, he was an amateur pianist himself. One of the things I like about this is that what he's got in his pocket is the sketchbook. Don't leave home without it friend of his mugging in the background. So um, after Mondrian's death, he paints this painting on the left, which is, uh, I, I couldn't call it an homage to Mondrian. I'm comparing it to 
one of the paintings on the right that Mondrian did or finished in New York, so you see that structure there, but what, what, is, what has happened? <laughs> this is really a very, it's, a, it's, it's really um, poking at the corpse, I think, of Mondrian, um, because Mondrian would have hated all of this crazy, um, arbitrary, particular detail and where it comes from, and this is not my research, there's a great catalog raisonné which, which has um, spelled all of this out. So it's a Popeye um, comic strip as the source for that material. On the inside, you can see uh, Popeye's forearm is up there. Of the basic so what you thought was a Mondrian structure is also a comic strip structure with the, the, the two panels, and uh, um, you, can, you can just uh, figure it out in the exhibition. Um, but to bring Mondrian and Popeye together, that's, that's really something. I'm, I'm not sure that's ever been done uh, before or since. His main work of the late 40s is this one painting. Again, it's too small. He didn't have room to paint it at scale. Um, works on it for six years, a huge struggle. He, at, towards the end, he sees Matisse's uh, cutouts and collages and um, a, a sort of confetti blizzard uh, descends on the painting, and he, he struggles to um, contain it. And, and, but even this is based on an earlier painting, uh, this great painting from the Whitney House and Street in which we see um, the elevated tracks. I had thought that this was uh, kind of an abstract framing of the painting, maybe a reference to film, uh, celluloid, uh, could be, but this, this is also the elevated as it, as it curves around, then it comes up and over, and we're under the elevated, and that's providing that black framing for, um, for Front Street, which is also a pun having to do with you know, the frontality of that part of the painting. There's Al Smith again, Bell Telephone, um, and, and that is the basis. It is the basis for that. They're hung together. You can, you can uh, see what you can see. Um, Good luck. <laughs> uh, this is an easier one. Um, another, another one of these paintings that gets reworked. Um, the, here's the, the first state from, from 1932, American painting. It was a very unusual painting for him, a kind of manifesto of his interest in, in, um, in, in, in 30s, you know, in, in, the, um, in what was going on. Uh, in the country. So I think the four people up there look to me like um, unemployed uh, workers. Uh, hands crossed, hands in pockets. Could be Davis and three of his friends, de Kooning, Gorky, and Graham. Um, the, uh, the figure here is, is apparently known as, as Jiggs from, from a cartoon. Could be Jiggs. There's a lot of other things going on there. And this is what, first thing that happens to it, in a couple of campaigns, he, he starts to to overpaint um, and um, complicate. Um, it doesn't really look like a painting that could succeed. And maybe it, it doesn't. And I don't think he is trying to succeed with every painting. Um, but it does capture a lot of his interests, including um, jazz. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. The song had just come out in 1931. Um, and then this painting at the Hirshhorn, uh, several years later, goes back to the same composition, zooms in on it, and um, brings everything to the front. He often uses yellow um, to cancel any background and, and, and uh, give your eye nowhere to rest. 
So there's many examples of, of this wonderful process here, taking a, a, one of the Paris paintings on, at the upper right and um, subjecting it to, to the Davis treatment. Love the upside down signature there. Stuart Davis, this painting is often reproduced upside down because of that. Um, he includes 28 there. Uh, a direct reference to the fact that he's looking back to this 1928 painting. Uh, the number eight comes up a lot in his paintings, possibly because he had such a great time in Paris in 1928. Uh, here's the number six. On the left, it's a six-cup coffee percolator, uh, believe it or not, um, which is complicated enough. This is from the egg beater period, and it's 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 almost one of the egg beater paintings, and then getting transformed again with that yellow background into one of the 1950s paintings. Um, what, what happens to him in 1949, uh, just to get back to the chronology that I promised, um, well, you know, I said the 40s were very hard, the late 40s, even though he had a show at the Museum of Modern Art, sort of a last minute show. Chagall was supposed to have the show and they couldn't bring the work over from Europe. Uh, because the war was still going on, and so Davis got a quick show, and it, it, it didn't seem to have a good effect on him. And um, finally, he, um, he, he goes into the hospital and gets treated for, for alcohol abuse, and it works in 1949, and he really manages to control it for the uh, last 15 years of his life, and um, gets a bigger studio, and starts selling paintings, and really comes into his own. Um, we saw this, this earlier, remember? The uh, cannon that turned into a smokestack and, and what it leads to here. And one interesting thing about this trio is that it shows you that he doesn't always get more abstract as he's going along, as we might expect. Um, so this is fairly realistic. This is the middle term, which is, which is much more difficult to read. And then here, back very much to the harbor scene in the, in the quilt style of, of, of 1954. You can, look, you can look for these families and then you can look across at any single year and see that there are connections you know, across subjects within any year as well. So another example, um, 1927 painting a mat, barely the outlines of a matchbook, maybe a, uh, maybe a flattened uh, box of a matchbook, um, which he picks up for a whole series of paintings, 1953 there. And a couple of years later, and a couple of years later, in, and, and finally, matchbook, you know, pretty much gone. Tabac is added, maybe to help us out. 1928 there. Facilities, facile, it is, facile it is, punning. Um, it, any, words, ideas. He used the word any to indicate, according to his notebooks, that any subject was fit for art. These are not in the show, but, but um, you know, uh, Barbara restrained me from putting every, every example of a variation in the show. Uh, and you're lucky. Uh, there's enough. Um, in this case, a, 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 one, an earlier 20s painting, one of his, one of, a, a great cubist, little cubist, essay in which everything has a double meaning. This is a, a downward pointing saw. You see the, the handle and the blade, but it's also a green, uh, green 
hilly landscape and a lake with a boat on it. So that landscape with saw becomes um, several great 50s paintings, um, two of them here. Rappaport's uh, coming to us again from the Hirshhorn just across the street. Rappaport's was a toy store in Manhattan known for its polka-dotted wrapping paper. So wrapped at Rappaport's, you've got the wrapping and we're wrapped, our attention is wrapped and we hear I think very much the, the wrapping of, of percussion, of drums, and uh, all of those peas popping out. He pops the peas out with, with color as you're reading across that caption. Um, and this is the kind of, the kind of wonderful uh, journal writing that he's doing in the 20s, just one example in which he's, he's talking about cubism and how in cubism, when objects start to share contours here, as opposed to being just floating in isolation, then space gets very interesting and ambiguous, and you're not sure what is in front of what, and that's very much what's going on on the left. Um, and this is one case in which we have photographs that, that demonstrate um, all the underdrawing of this painting as it, as it, um, as it developed. So starting with, with this very, and, and this painting is squared off for transfer to the bigger canvas, and, and then uh, it eventually kind of dissolves. Uh, there's a whole room dedicated to the package deal paintings. Um, Mid-50s, Fortune Magazine asked Davis and a few other artists to go shopping, take the groceries and make a painting out of them, and, and this was perfect for Davis. He loved it, and he stacked up the groceries on the left. There's Earl uh, helping out. Uh, his cowboy suit, and um, so on the right is is the Fortune magazine um, feature with with uh, Davis's painting, a, a gouache painting. Um, we also have wonderful uh, about 14 sketches in which he's trying out all kinds of arrangements. He loves um, loves the words, loves the monosyllables, you know, and they also all have double meanings especially when you think of his jazz buddies in that milieu, cat, bag, pad, etc. And he can't stop, of course. You know, the magazine comes out, he keeps making paintings <laughs> out of this, um, looking, f focusing on details, changing the colors, so on. So the 50s really are his, his decade, and he's, he is in full swing here. Um, really trying out some, some very unusual things for him. The red and black painting on the left from the Guggenheim, one of my favorites. Um, you can just, you know, just trace this, this wonderful element through. And uh, another trio um, ending, ending up um, uh, with this painting, but, but the middle term is, maybe, is one of his most famous paintings, Colonial Cubism. I think he, he felt that it was an important painting, and he gave it that important title, which really, really talks about his dilemma of being, being a colonial, being a provincial, um, being outside of Paris, but still, still doing something new with Cubism. And uh, here, in fact, we see him in his studio with Colonial Cubism on the easel. It looks small, but I think it's just far back. And what has he got there? Television. He was apparently one of the first people in his, in his uh, whole circle in New York to get a television in 1950. Kept it on with the sound off. Had jazz going, so he didn't want to compete with that. And this is how he's working uh, in the studio. 
got his palette there, very traditional painter in a lot of ways, mixing his paints on a, on a classic palette, doing all kinds of studies, you know, preparatory work, squaring up things, very traditional uh, with the television. <laughs> There's that, uh, that squiggle I mentioned before has been turned upside down now. He sometimes does finished paintings in black and white just to really see the bones of the painting because he, you know, I think he, he realizes as much as anybody that the color can, can be, can be um, overwhelming. And in the last room, we, we've gotten there. Uh, <laughs> um, so on the left, there's this series of champion paintings starting in 1950 with this one from Virginia. Um, the source, Davis said the source was this um, matchbox cover uh, advertising champion spark plugs. Um, but I think likely also the ads for the movie Champion, a very, very depressing boxing movie starring Kirk Douglas. It also came out in just 1949, just before um, he did the painting. So he goes on to do th three other versions. Um, you know, we don't even need to mention Matisse, the cutouts here. Uh, he, he's, he's not, he's never ashamed of his sources, you could say that. Um, the black and white version, and then this unfinished version has a piece of masking tape along here for some reason um, with a black line on it. I think he's trying to isolate certain areas as he works. He doesn't use tape to make straight lines. He doesn't paint over the tape and then, and then rip it off. Um, also, this has a very thin paint indicating that it's a first layer. Um, and then on the other side of the room, some really, really uh, garish paintings with this limited palette of, of black, red, white, green, yellow, of all things. Um, no relief here, no relief. He is, he is really um, pushing hard right, right up until the end and, 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 and not, not settling into, uh, I mean, the, the paintings on the other side of the room are so pretty in all in the Matisse colors and I think that he's saying, you know, that's not everything, that's not all I do. Um, these two paintings are, are really very closely related. And one thing that interests me here is that there's his signature going downhill, Stuart Davis. So I was trying to figure out what that is. Because this painting is sort of a cropping of that painting. And that is um, Stuart going uphill and just starting the Davis. So that, okay, so that little complex there, it gets gets turned around there. Um, and I could be wrong about that, but. Um, got it wrap up here, but um, it's all in the last room with this, this um, unrelenting palette. Still going way back to earlier sketches for some of his motifs. In fact, that motif Kind of, kind of an icon form because it has the X and the O, and the X is expansion and the O is contraction, and it's a lot about his, his art theory that he's been spinning out in really unreadable fashion in private notebooks for, for a few decades. And um, I know there's someone in the audience who's just done a PhD on his art theory, so I'm very much looking forward to reading that. Um, and then we, um, you know, we see that motif getting cycled into mural, so. Really successful in the 50s, getting commissions for murals in um, 
uh, in this case Des Moines and one in Pittsburgh. He has a show at the Walker Art Center. He gets chosen for the Venice Biennale Guggenheim Fellowship. Um, you know, he, he finally um, made it. And uh, after, after a, a lot of struggle, um, but he's diagnosed in 1959 with uh, heart trouble, kidney trouble, and and you know I think he realizes things things are going going south. And this is his last painting in which he has put the word uh, fin. I suppose it could be fin, but I think I think it's the fin for him. Um, and he died the next uh, day, incredibly, on on the way to the hospital. Um, and we see uh, we see how he's working. It's it's it's. I didn't want to make this the very last painting because it's not really finished. But great document of how he visualizes things with the tape, bringing in words. Some of his favorite words: front from you know from Front Street back in New York, Al from Al in San Paolo, and um, his signature even is is roughed out there. Always it's always an element. It's not a signature. We shouldn't think of it as a signature. It's a visual element of the painting. Um, and uh, speaking of which, I thought I would just end with, with a look at his uh, signatures, which there's so many ways to go through the show. And um, so I just went through with my iPhone a few different ways. And one of them was, was just looking at signatures. So um, here we're, uh, you know what this painting is, right? <laughs> it's, it's too hard. One of the tobacco paintings. Um, one of the light bulb paintings. So um, already very early on, he has his he has his script, but it's uh, fairly fairly um, you know restrained here. Um, going back and forth, script to printing. This also is an opportunity to see the brushwork I was talking about. The this um, love of different textures and and effects on the on the on the texture of that canvas weave. Um, very playful. Here, signature bringing two planes together. Here we begin to see that connection, which will become very important between the T and the D. Um, remember that from the New York mural, his possibly shout out to uh, Al Smith. Um, here, swing landscape, so he has signed it publicly so people can see that from a distance and also given it maybe a real signature. Um, this is the uh, WNYC radio station mural. And I won't identify all of these, but often he, he has left uh, space for the signature. It's not on top. It's actually set into the very fabric of the paint. It's a planned element. Always aware of um, color relationships. Here's the upside down one from the Paris bit. This one is right in the middle of one of the late paintings in that last room. Going downhill, Stuart going uphill, and finally uh, Stuart just, just roughed out there. Unfinished Stuart Davis. Um, so let's see, I am usually love to take questions, but I know I'm signing some catalogs out there if anyone wants to um, get it by a catalog and have it signed. And I will take that time to answer one quick question from anyone who has it. And I will um, just end with my own composition 
which is a photograph I took at the opening. I think Stuart Davis would have loved this. It has the packaging, the products, the labels, the shallow space. And my title for this is, um, you can't do a Stuart Davis retrospective without breaking some cookies. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 